1: another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show, broadcasting on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Michael McCall, and I'm going to be going solo for this episode. Decided to give Zach a little bit of a break after all the work he's been doing for us the last couple of weeks, but don't worry, we've got another packed show for you, a lot of stuff happening, a lot of things that we're going to cover, and we've got a lot of interesting audio clips and interviews to bring you this week. I hope you're all doing well wherever you are and staying healthy, staying safe and staying at home. And like all weeks during this time, we're going to kick things off by heading around the world with Joe Corona. And although we're saying uh, around the world with Joe, it's pretty much mostly European news that we're going to bring you this week. One thing we will mention though is if you are interested in watching some live football that doesn't come from Belarus, the K-League, we talked about it in last week's show, Gets underway on Friday, May 8th, with K-League 2 getting underway on Saturday. There's been a lot of talk that ESPN have been in discussion with the K-League for rights, so that might mean that TSN get rights as well. So just keep checking your social media during the week to see if you might be seeing some live football on your Canadian TVs. Maybe even see Neil Henry. But we are going to pretty much concentrate on Europe in, in this first part of the show. There's been a lot happening with uh, a lot of the leagues in Europe. In Italy, Serie A clubs have got the go-ahead to return to training on Monday, so from May 4th. The original plan was to have clubs returning on the 18th of May, but the Italian government have brought things forward by two weeks. It's a little bit of a surprise, especially considering how badly hit that country has been. And there has apparently been a lot of disagreement between some of the regional assemblies in the country as to whether they should have come back on the 18th, could they come back sooner. But athletes seem to have been granted a kind of an essential worker status and just allowing them to to get back into training early, obviously with a number of precautions still in place for that to happen. But I think as Germany has shown this week, it doesn't really matter how many precautions you can have in place, things can still happen with this virus. Bundesliga clubs have been back at training since last week. And despite there being lots of precautions in place, lots of things to make sure that folk aren't spreading the virus, it hasn't stopped three people being tested positive at Cologne this week. All three of the people that tested positive were symptom-free. Now, the club have not revealed whether they are players or staff, but it seems to be from reading some other social media posts from players it looks to be two players and a physiotherapist or trainer, or, or something of that elk that, that has actually tested positive. The three people that have tested positive are having to quarantine for 14 days, and you would think that would maybe send alarm bells through the club, through the Bundesliga, but apparently not, and Cologne are still going to continue training with just without those guys being present, which seems madness to me, because you don't know whether things have spread, and if they were symptom-free, what other people were maybe carrying the virus and not showing symptoms. But if it's happened at Cologne, you can be fairly sure that that's not going to be the only club hit by this. And when we were talking to Zach about this a couple of weeks ago, I felt it was too early to get back. And I mean, we'll see what happens. It might just be this as a one-off, which is going to be kind of amazing. But I, I do just feel that they have rushed things back a little bit too soon in Germany with that. But just over the border from Germany... France has taken a completely different approach, and they have actually ended their League 1 season. That in itself has not gone without some controversy. PSG have been crowned champions, and for me that was the completely correct decision. They were 12 points ahead, they had 11 games to go, and that included a game in hand over second place Marseille. They weren't going to get caught, it made complete sense... Given PSG their third straight League One title and their seventh in the last eight years as well. So that's not been the controversy. I mean even the relegation issues not been that controversial. Bottom place to lose have been relegated. They were ten points adrift at the foot of the table. I Amiens mean, were also relegated. Now they were four points clear of safety with ten games to go, so they have been a little bit upset by it, but looking at results they'd only had four wins in the whole year. a minus 19 goal difference. I mean, to me, again, it looked like they would be the club that would go down. It's at the top end of the table that there has been some big disgruntlement. Now, Rennes were in third place. Six points off second. They've qualified for the Champions League qualifying rounds. Lille were fourth, they were just a point behind, so they're a little bit unhappy about that, there was 10 games to go, they feel they could have got into the Champions League, instead they're going to have to settle for a place in the Europa League, but the biggest argument has come from Lyon, who are going to miss out altogether on European football, and that's going to have a devastating impact for them financially. That I understand, but there were nine points adrift of European football at the stage with 10 games to go. Were they going to be able to turn that around? Yeah, their goal difference was fantastic at plus 15, better than all the clubs ahead of them. But you have to feel they were not going to close that gap and qualify for Europe. And there was no way that any decision could be made that was going to please every single club. So I, I think the, the league 1 officials have done the right thing. Leon can threaten court action if they want, I just don't think they're going to get very far with it. In Scotland, the saga is still dragging on. Rangers are still threatening to release some bombshell evidence that shows that league officials were biased and doing underhand tactics and did not act honourably in calling an end to this season, which hasn't officially even been ratified yet. No evidence has so far been produced, but apparently it is going to get produced this week. There is a special AGM happening next Tuesday on the, the 12th of May. Rangers are looking for the, the league president and executives to, to kind of step down, but they need the support of 9 out of 12 teams in the Premier League and three quarters of the teams in all the other leagues, and it just doesn't really look like that's going to happen. The backing that they've got just now to call this it's all from clubs that are mightily pissed off at the league's season ending. Rangers, who still feel they could catch Celtic. I genuinely don't think they could have. Hearts, who are facing relegation. And Stranraer, who are facing relegation. So, it's people looking after their own self-interests. Not for the greater interest of Scottish football. It's very disappointing. But this is just dragging on and on and on. And hopefully, by next week, we're going to get an end to it. But I mean, who knows, because in England as well, things are still undecided down there as the best way to, to move the league forward. The appetite seems to be to finish the English Premier League season. How they're going to do that, though, is all what's up in the air just now. So where to start covering the news from the the English leagues this week? Well, I guess the best place to start is with Project Restart. It was announced on Wednesday by the government and league officials, with the aim of looking at getting Premier League football back sooner rather than later. That was followed up by Premier League clubs having a three and a half hour meeting via video conference on Friday, and they're going to be having another meeting next Friday as well. Now some of the things that were discussed on Friday and coming out of Project Restart is that they're looking at getting players to return to training by May 8th, So that's going to be this coming Friday. And that's with a view to getting matches played from June 8th, which I talked about the the German Bundesliga. I felt it was too soon for them to be back training. I feel over in the UK with everything that's still happening over there, trying to get football back from June 8th just seems absolute insanity for me. And I'm not alone in, in that feeling as well, because at least one club raise concerns at this meeting on Friday because they, they feel the obstacles that need to be overcome to get everything back running the way that they want it are just too great to try and overcome just now. And what they mean by that is from a training aspect, they're, they're talking that players should perhaps wear face masks in training, which is going to be difficult for running and breathing. They're talking about disinfecting corner flags, disinfecting cones that the players are using. Players that are driving to the training facilities, their cars should be parked three spaces apart. I mean, that's not huge obstacles to overcome. It's a giant pain in the ass to, to have to do that for every single training session. Then you have the actual aspects of playing the games as well. And and there was a mock graphic release this week identifying 300 people that would need to be at the games. And we talked a little bit about that last week in terms of the Bundesliga. But you're breaking that down and lots of media that I feel could be cut out altogether because there's nothing that the media can do at the games that they can't do from afar via video conference. It's not as if you're going to be getting up close and personal with the players, which you don't even really get to do over in the Premier League anyway. It's all kind of just mass press conferences, and that can certainly be done from afar. They had in that number as well eight doping agents, which again seems far more than it is going to be required. But the biggest question and the biggest query, and a number of people have raised this, not just within football, but out with it as well, is... For this all to happen, the players have to get regularly tested. And there's concerns just now that there's not enough testing getting done in the UK. And people are not wanting tests wasted on footballers when they can be used in far more important things. Frontline workers in particular, people in hospital. And if if people are not being able to get testing done, but footballers are, then that's an absolutely scandalous situation to be in. And the players aren't happy about it either. Not many of them have spoken out publicly about it yet, but Man City's Sergio Aguera certainly is one of them that has. He admits to being scared about the whole situation. Not so much scared about getting the virus himself, but scared about him getting it and then passing it on to his family or friends or elderly people or people that he's out and about with. And that is a genuine concern to have. The English PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, they've said that player safety has to be paramount in this. And the players are looking for the union to take a stand, it's kind of felt by many. Whether they will or not is going to be interesting to see. I genuinely think they will, and I think there could be a lot of butt in the heads and a bit of a clash between them and league officials to get this done. For what it's worth, the Premier League have issued a statement saying, It was agreed that the PFA, the League Managers Association, players and managers are key to this process and will be further consulted. You just have to hope that that is going to mean what it actually means. And it's not just going to be they're going to be consulted. They're going to take their concerns on board. And everyone keeps saying that this return is to to lift spirits and for sporting integrity because you can't end the season early. But that kind of goes out the window when you've got clubs only wanting to agree to come back if relegation is kind of taken off the table. Where's the sporting integrity of that? And the reason a number of these clubs are saying that is that they're concerned because they're wanting these games to be played at between 8 or 10 neutral stadiums. Most of those stadiums that's being identified are going to be Premier League grounds, but not necessarily all of them. So you could, for example, have Sunderland Stadium or Middlesbrough Stadium in the North East as one of the neutral stadiums. Clubs won't be able to play their home games in their own stadium either, so every single team will play in a neutral stadium. But even that idea has been questioned by some. The mayor of Liverpool is concerned that it doesn't matter whether Liverpool are playing in Liverpool. If Liverpool play one of these games and they only need two more wins to clinch the title, the mayor is worried that fans will congregate outside Anfield or in the city centre or something to celebrate the the league championship win. And you have to feel they probably would. The neutral stadiums that they're looking at haven't been revealed as such, but they're wanting it to be stadiums that are in more urban areas, so it's not really in built-up areas. Man City's grounds, one of the ones that, that's going to get highlighted for that. Possibly Brighton's ground as well, but Brighton won't be able to play there. And a man that many of us know well here in Vancouver, former Whitecaps CEO and current Brighton and Hove Albion CEO Paul Barber... He's against these games getting played in neutral stadiums because he feels it's a big disadvantage to a club like his that is fighting relegation. I mean, you look at the teams that they've still got to play. They've got to play like Liverpool and Arsenal and Man City. They don't want those games played on neutral grounds anyway. But even playing at home stadium with no fans there, it's not exactly going to give them the the big boost that, that they're needing and to try and get the points that they need to take them over the line. So Brighton are one of the clubs thought to want relegation gone, West Ham as well who are just above the relegation places on goal difference right now, Brighton's above it by I think two points. They're against what they say is sterile environments and West Ham want to play their home games at their home stadium but if you allow them to do it you have to allow every team to be able to do that and that's just not going to be feasible. But I mean, the whole situation is very fluid. Things are coming out almost daily, clubs are speaking out about things, players are speaking out about things. If there isn't relegation, will there be promotion? You have to feel there's going to be that, and there's been talk that in the English Championship they might have a playoff, cup, knockout competition of the top eight sides to decide who gets promotion, with perhaps only two teams going up this year instead of the normal three. If there is then no relegation, you're then looking at more than the three teams getting relegated the following season. And considering the perils of relegation to Premier League teams over the years, you just have to look at what happened to the likes of Portsmouth. Almost went out of business after their fall down the leagues. Parachute payments are all well and good, but if there's a mass number of teams relegated the following season, it's not going to be good. So I feel by the time I bring you next week's show, there's going to be a a lot more to discuss on this. The government is having another meeting on Thursday, with the Premier League having a meeting the following day, so we'll see what comes out of that. I just feel they're trying to rush back far too soon, and the reason that they are trying to do that is contract situation. In Germany, they're saying that's the the big reason as well, that they've got contract situations and sponsor deals that mean that their league has to be completed by June 30th. I know I've said this a couple of times already on the show, I just feel this is way too soon and just a bit of patience, a bit of common sense is what needs to happen right now. But when has that ever happened in football? And one other interesting note from Europe, and one with a Canadian aspect to it as well, FIFA Vice President Victor Montagliani has said in an, an interview with Italy's Radio Sportiva that he feels the European leagues may want to look to move to playing their seasons in a calendar year a la MLS, kind of to fit in with the 2022 World Cup. And with everything that's been happening with the coronavirus as well, this does certainly give them the opportunity for leagues to look at doing that and maybe starting their new seasons in January or February next year. There's a lot of advantages off that. The biggest one, of course, being summer football. Something which, when I lived in Scotland... I was kind of torn about it because I, I liked my, my winter games, I, I liked the Christmas and Boxing Day and New Year fixtures, I mean they were fantastic, but then once you come over here and you experience summer football and nice weather and everything like that, and then you go back to, to seeing some games over there, you're like, why are we doing this when we could be playing summer football in the couple of days of nice weather that that Scotland gets in the summer? But It does make a lot of sense and it would lead to less postponements, it would lead to clubs, especially smaller clubs, lower league clubs, non-league clubs, knowing exactly where they stand financially, not having to cancel games and lose hospitality money and sponsor money and gate money. There's a lot of positives from that. So this could be the chance for leagues around the world, but especially in Europe, to kind of adopt a different model. FIFA president Gianni Infantino has already said that he feels that football will be totally different when it does restart after the the current shutdown. And it would be kind of ironic as well because folk for years have been going on about, oh, MLS should have dropped the the European style season. And now if the Europeans adopt the, the MLS style season, I think you know that there's going to be some American journalists in particular that's going to be crowing a little bit about that. But of course, while football has shut down across the world, there are some little corners of the globe where football is still going on. And the most important one to us here at AFTN is over in Belarus. The Belarusian Premier League and our beloved FK Slutsk. Let's see how they got on this week. We
2: love The greatest team in
3: Belarus We love
1: And what another fantastic weekend it was for our table-topping Slutsk. 2-1 win at Dynamo Minsk saw them keep their first place in the Belarusian Premier League. Once again though they kind of switched off a little bit in the closing stages and made it a lot more interesting than it should have been. The home side came out strong and had the best of the early going but then Slutsk took the lead 22 minutes in a fantastic long range strike from Dramani Salu after some nice build up work in the box the ball broke to Salu about 25 yards from goal and he drilled a low screamer past the Minsk keeper into the bottom right hand corner 1-0 FK Slutsk and they were looking fairly comfortable after that, but then it looked like they had let the home side get a foothold back into the match, giving away a penalty. Boris Pankratov, a judge to have committed a foul in the box when he came out to collect the ball, did barge the Mints player over in the process of getting it. Thought it was very harsh though, and the Mince player made the most of it. The penalty was given though, Pankratov picked up a booking in the 37th minute. Only for Ivan Bakar to step up and crash the ball off this Sluts crossbar. The danger was cleared. Still 1-0 FK Slutsk and that was how it stayed until halftime. Slutsk came out strong in the second half and doubled their lead. 52 minutes in. Quick breakaway and a nice little bit of individual work from a player that I've been very impressed with the last couple of weeks. Umar Bala Mohamed did well to make the chance, and the Nigerians sent the ball across the six-yard box for Burkini Faso striker Abdul Ghaffar in the right place at the right time, puts it away in the back of the net. 2-0, Sluts, it's dreamland for the league leaders. But we've seen this before. They've made a habit of going a couple of goals up in matches, and then they've kind of struggled to hold on a little bit and had backs against the wall. And once again, the Sluts were sloppy at the back, laying the home side to get back into things. Carlo Brucic fires the ball home in the 86th minute to make it squeaky bum time for Slutsk in the closing moments, but they did manage to hold on, went under too much danger in fact, held on to make it three wins in a row, unbeaten now in five matches, and still top of the Belarus Premier League. Who can stop my mighty Sluts? Well, hopefully not energetic BGU Minsk, because that's who Sluts face next Friday. And remember, you can watch the match live on YouTube. We'll bring you the details of that in next week's AFTN Soccer Show. Come on, you sluts in blue. And that completes Joe Corona's travels around the world for this week. And Joe stays at home for the next part as we look at the latest news from the shutdown in North America. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi,
2: I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
1: Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And that was the first song by our new Artist of the Month for the month of March. That was what I feel is the best band to ever come out of Wales, Super Furry Animals, God, Show Me Magic, from their debut English album from 1996, Fuzzy Logic. They had a couple of expanded EPs just in Welsh before that. And the Super Furries are one of my all-time favourite bands. Everyone under the sun just now seems to be doing their lists of favourite bands and favourite albums and favourite this and favourite that. So I was trying to jot down what I feel is my favourite top 10 bands or artists of all time. It was a tough task. won't go through them all just now for you. Number one is the Buzzcocks, will always be my favourite. Number two, Scottish band Mogwai. And then I had a tough task trying to decide who I had as number three and number four, between the Pixies and the Super Furry Animals. And I think the Pixies will just edge out the Super Furries for me, but uh, definitely too close to call. Seen both bands a number of times, and one of the best gigs I've ever been to. It was over two days in Glasgow, And it wasn't really so much a gig if it was over two days, but it was a a trio of events called Furry Mania in 2001 to celebrate the release of their new album, Rings Around the World. It was a weekend of Furry Mania. And what that involved, on the Friday night, they had made videos of all the songs on the new album. So that was shown as a a film in one of the Glasgow art theatres. The Saturday afternoon, limited to 100 people if you had the special wristband, I was lucky enough to be one of those people that got in early to get that, they did a special acoustic show in a small Glasgow club, and the way they did their setlist was they had a bingo machine. Every single song they had written from their very start up until then, which included Welsh language songs and rare b-sides and demos and everything, each song was allocated with a number. The bingo machine spat out a ball, and then they played that song it was that alone was one of the best gigs I've ever been to and then that night in Glasgow at the Barrowlands they they played their their full gig and it was just an absolutely fantastic two days still have the hoodie from it I should probably dig that out I think but I know you're not listening to this show just to hear my ramblings about Welsh bands that I've loved over the years let's get back to the football chat part one saw us travelling around the world with Joe Corona And of course in this part that means we're going to be staying at home with Joe as we look at the impact of the continuing shutdown of football on North American soccer. Now some news coming out from MLS this week. The league announced that players will be permitted to conduct individual workouts on outdoor team training fields beginning on Wednesday May 6th. Now the workouts, which must be conducted in compliance with detailed health and safety protocols are voluntary, they can't conflict with local public health official or government policies, and players are still prohibited to access club facilities, including locker rooms, gyms, team training rooms. The only exceptions to that being players that are still rehabbing any injuries that we've got. So, for example, from the Whitecaps... Jasa Kimiri is still getting his knee up to strength following the injuries he had last year. So if you've seen his Instagram, he's been in the gym doing some stuff there. That is allowed. The full team training moratorium is still in place through to May 15th. And there's been a lot of rumours that once that is done, the league is going to say that players can get back into training from May 16th which also ties into the rumours last week that we talked about of NWSL teams getting back to training that day as well. Nothing's been officially confirmed, but again, a June 8th or roundabout that start date is uh, the date that's being thrown out there for MLS teams to, to get back to actually playing. And I won't harp on again about this being too soon, but it's too soon. We mentioned last week that Commissioner Don Garber has talked about everything still being on the table as to how and when MLS will return. Every executive that you speak to around the league is talking about the the league is telling them that they're still hoping to play a full season. As crazy as that might sound. And to tie in with that, one of the other murmurs coming out this week is roundabout Neutral Venues. Three cities whose names have been put out there as possible venues to to host these teams. Orlando, Dallas and Kansas City. I think we've all seen what's been happening in Florida. That's kind of terrifying. Texas as well has lifted restrictions. But whenever MLS does return, it's looking pretty certain that it's going to be played at a number of set venues. There's going to be neutral venues. Not all teams will be able to play their games at home. We still don't know what this means for the Canadian clubs with cross-border travel. There was an interesting article on CBC this week where they were talking about sporting personnel, players, staff, whatever, would have to get a special exemption from the Canadian government to cross the border. And that hasn't been granted yet, so you don't know if that even would get granted. Would MLS go ahead if the three Canadian clubs could not take part? You'd like to think no, but again you would not put anything past the, the the league. But discussions have certainly been had regarding playing in neutral venues and what that could mean, what that could look like. Will some teams get to play games at home? Will some teams not get to play games at home? You have to think of teams like New York Red Bulls and New York City FC, where it's really bad there just now. Well, interestingly, that was something that was brought up this week on a conference call by FC Cincinnati's Chief Operating Officer, Dennis Carroll, I was one of around eight media that was on that call. And I'm going to bring you a few snippets from that just now. Now, what I've done with the call is I've kind of rejigged the questions from the order that they were asked during the call, just to make it flow a little bit better. The way that I've done it as well, it means the three questions that I asked over the course of it are all at the end of this, but it's going to make sense the way it flows. And MLS returning finances and, Nances, and a, a lot more besides was discussing this and there's a few interesting things from Dennis Carroll here so let's hear what he had to
4: say like i Liz and I
5: sat in a conference room out in MHTC for I think you know 48 straight hours together uh, a couple days before our home opener on March 14th. And at that time, it, it's funny how quickly things have just changed, right? At that time we were talking about playing the game, literally trying to get our hands on as many, um, sanitizers and things like that, um, to have at ad- nipper for that game on that weekend. I mean, I remember the, the phone calls like it was yesterday and, and just to come this far, where literally we've now been quarantined as an organization for, for weeks at a time, uh, Playing a game at this point seems very, very uh, unlikely in, in the near term. So it just, it just amazes me, right, how everything has shifted. The sports and entertainment industry, obviously one of the, the main industries affected here.
4: I think one thing that's on the minds of fans right now is what will happen with uh, games that have been affected by the, the stoppage and league play uh, in terms of ticketing. Uh, do you have any update there? And thank yeah, you. I'd say, I mean,
5: our goal, and we're working you know, hand in hand with the MLS at all levels, our goal is still to play games and, and being that they're just postponed at this point. Again, how we do that is TBD. You know, We're looking at all, all different scenarios, whether you start the season in a kind of contained environment, much like the MLB is, is looking at. And then slowly but surely, you can kind of open up games into markets that are more uh, available to play. So at this point, we're still optimistic of playing games. But with that, we want to be understanding and flexible to our fans, and that's where I think we want to position ourselves um, to allow um, credits, rollovers, and then explore refunds when it, when, when the opportunity pre- uh, presents itself given canceled games. But at this point, um, in conjunction with the MLS, we're very much set on, on playing these games in, in
0: some fashion.
3: Really the main question I have is um it h- how do you guys view the potential uh lost revenue from fans um you, you know the i guess likelihood if you see it that way that fans may not be in the stadiums at least for part of this season and and how much how much of the team's revenue that generates and how you guys get around that
5: Yeah it, it's a great question Steve, and right of Pandemic is a situation you, you never really, um, model for, right. As, or can, you know, have a contingency plan for it, uh, it from an economic standpoint, it, it's significant, right. And there's no sugarcoating that it, there's, you know, 90% of our revenues are, you know, playing games and playing games at home, having, having ticket, um, ticket sales and the ancillary revenues that are associated with that, whether it's parking, food and beverage merchandise. Um, so it's a significant portion, um, especially in MLS when you think about the economics of the MLS right now. Um, so that's where we've modeled all various scenarios um, and we're working, you know, hard or very closely with the league in terms of what the ramifications will be playing games with fans, playing games without fans playing maybe in a, in a centralized environment to, to start the season, but there's no doubt that it's going to have a long-term effect. And again, I go back to, you know, we're, we're a little bit fortunate right now from a, from a financial position, being that we're building a stadium that we've we've obviously properly funded from a cash perspective for the stadium, we'll feel this pain. We just may not feel this pain this month, next month, the following month. We'll feel it down the road where other teams that are building a stadium maybe don't have a, um, a reserve of cash. This is immediate pain for them, um, whether it's the MLS or, or any, any league. So it's reality, and we're managing it daily. With the idea that 90% of the money comes from the gate? Do you see a scenario of playing games without fans? Even if MLS says that, it seems like that would cost money. (laughs) Baseball, where
4: we're seeing that scenario start to unfold.
5: No, I mean, I think you're right. And that's where we want to go. We in in the league obviously want to go into, into a scenario to play games uh, if we're only going to lose money because there's an absence of spectators. You know, knowing the economics of MLS aren't quite what the NFL or MLB are. Um, it, it's definitely different, different kind of math equation, if you will. But I think that's where we need to get creative with our broadcast partners. Maybe add different elements within the broadcast from a, that are, um, you know, you're able to commercialize um, and drive revenue from. So I think that's where we're exploring everything. And I think ultimately, too, I think there's you got to place some value on, on being present and relevant. So the the qualitative factor of, of playing games, being on TV, having our brand and league out there has a value to it. And that's what I think we're all trying to kind of put our heads together and
1: figure out. Dennis, I was just wondering, has there been any discussions amongst MLS, whether it has to be every single team comes back? Because there are parts of the country, I'm up here in Canada, and there's different parts of Canada where the situation's a lot worse than others. Has there been discussions that it has to be every single team or there can be no season?
5: I don't think I've heard that scenario yet, but I, I have heard that um, each team may not have the equal number of home games. So if a certain area right, just isn't deemed as safe or, or is considered open as other areas, you may have a team that's just on the road for 75% of its games, depending on the number of games you get in. So I have heard that uh, scenario, and again, I think that's where we as a league just have to be creative and flexible, and I think fans and the media will understand that completely, and that there's a scenario where one team, because they're in a deemed a safer market, may end up playing all these games at home.
1: Interesting. I was just wanting to ask on a personal level, like as a businessman, you, you plan for so many different scenarios in a season, in a year, but something like this is something that operating officers are never going to have really planned for what has been the most testing aspect for you on a personal level
5: um that's a great question i mean you're right i mean i don't i don't think in any swot analysis you would probably list a pandemic just because it seems so you know out there uh but you're right so right now i think it's interesting i'm in my basement so i have awful cell phone service i started in a makeshift office uh in a spare bedroom upstairs but once the weather broke it was really hot up there, so I kind of made the move down here. Um, so I think the hardest part is, is just managing here. I have two little ones in the house, a three- and six-year-old. And my wife also works, but she worked from home prior to this. We're kind of invading on her territory. And it's just – it's the NCAA, survive in advance, and we're just kind of getting through each day at home, making sure the kids are at least um, happy, learning somewhat, and again, just kind of make it to the weekend, even if it doesn't feel like a weekend much anymore.
1: And the way that all the clubs around the league are having to to cope with things just now, and you're having, as you talked about, you're basically content providers now. Do you think that this could be the new normal in a lot of sense? That you've learned stuff from this time that you'll then carry forward as the the new normal once everything is back to normal.
5: I do. I think after this, obviously, once everyone kind of gets back together and you're able to kind of you know take a breath and and wrap your head around truly what happened, because. We will be back to normal at some point. I absolutely do think it'll change um the way we think about our business and any business for that matter. Um, whether it's just day-to-day um inner office environments or communication or or meetings. Uh, I think we've learned a lot via Zoom and some of these other um virtual video conferences. And then just the economics of business, you know, ultimately may change. And you know, we're we're even looking at alternative revenue streams and, and, and business units. So I think Ultimately, the value of maybe some other assets within our business are going to increase and maybe some other assets that we kind of viewed differently six, you know, 12 months ago may decrease.
4: i to your city, in our city.
1: FC Cincinnati Chief Operating Officer Dennis Carroll there. And I, I thought there was a few interesting things came out of that conference call. But I mean, he was the first executive from the league that I've heard kind of openly discuss what some of the plans might be for MLS returning with regards to neutral venues, and in particular, the fact that some teams might have to play most or even all of their games on the road. Some teams will get to play most or all of their games at home. Now, we talked in the first part about sport and integrity and all the discussions about Premier League teams playing in neutral venues just now. So, I mean, that certainly does not seem an ideal situation in MLS if some teams are getting to play at home and some are not. I still question the appetite of players to to be put up in these neutral sites away from their family for a long, long period of time. Now, we've had some players on the show that say, well, needs must, you've got to do what happens to get the season done. But that's a long time to be away from your families and I don't know, for me it wouldn't sit comfortable, I wouldn't be happy doing it. I'm sure there are going to be some players that's not happy doing it. We talked in the first part about the situation in England and the English PFA are wanting to work closely in the league. Some of the players there are hoping that the union can maybe take a stand for the players on this issue. And it is going to be interesting to see what the union do in this regard. And it is going to be interesting to see what the MLS Players Union may be doing in this regard and what their stance in this will be. And talking of the Players Union, if you're an extra subscriber, you'll hopefully have received our most recent episode of the AFTN Extra podcast. That was all around the MLS Players Union with a a conference call back from February when the new CBA was agreed. Of course, as we mentioned a couple of shows ago, that CBA has not all been signed off by the owners... So things could get interesting if the players don't agree to what the owners want to do. Will they sign the CBA or will they rip that up and then maybe no one will get any pay this year? You hope it doesn't come to that and you hope common sense does prevail. And personally, I just hope that when it comes to common sense, everyone listens to what the medical people are saying and they look at the stats and the facts and the numbers and things are just not done too quickly to, to bring this back. I'd rather have a shortened season or a knockout cup competition as a season than try and bring things back too early, things go wrong, and then you're back to square one. Elsewhere in North America, USL League 2 was completely scrapped this week. Not a big surprise, we kind of talked a little bit about this on last week's show, but the season is now completely scrapped. The Pacific Northwest Division had already said that they weren't going to play this season disappointing obviously as, as the commentator for TSS Rovers that I didn't get to call any games this year but certainly the right decision. And with USL knowing that games cannot return until probably mid-July the earliest is what they're looking at then there was no way that the USL League 2 season could work with most of the teams being made up of college players and them having to get back to their colleges and universities. The USL Championship and USL League 1 though is still pending They have not been cancelled and the hope is that they can still get some games in. Some USL sides are are also hoping to ramp up training in in the coming weeks. One of them being Alan Koch's Colorado Springs switchbacks. And we're actually going to have Alan on next week's show. So that's going to be our feature interview on the the next episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. So tune in for that. We'll be talking about SFU, his time at the Whitecaps, Cincinnati and what he's building down in Colorado Springs just now. And there's been some fantastic stuff come out from a a couple of USL teams this week that I'll I'll just kind of finish this section of the show by talking about. Now, a club that has seemed to do a lot right in the last year is Forward Madison FC. Now, the Wisconsin club played their first season in 2019 and they had a fantastic social media presence and a, a lot of work with the fans and their strip was very popular and a lot of the things that they did even beginning with naming the club online as a vote that they had in 2018. And just a lot of the things that they've done involving supporters and supporters' rights and just working with the fans, I mean, they've been excellent. Their latest initiative is that they are selling tickets to an imaginary match to benefit local restaurants and healthcare workers. Tickets for Forward Madison FC versus COVID-19 are on sale now. They cost $10. You can buy it from anywhere you are in the world. So if you're listening to this, just Google Forward Madison online store and you'll see that you can buy a ticket for the match, the imaginary match, for $10. You'll get sent a commemorative ticket and your name will go on a mural that will be installed at the new Bree Stevens Field. Half of the money raised will be used to purchase meals from six local restaurants, and those mails will then be donated to healthcare workers at Madison Hospitals. The rest of the money is going to go for paying for the mural and the cost of producing it and sending the tickets. Now last year, the record for a forward Madison match was 4,821 attendance, and they're hoping to sell more tickets than that and set a new record that way. The USL League One side sold about 500 tickets in the first five hours of sales on Friday, If you can afford it, and I know if you're wanting to donate money, you might want to do it locally, but I just think it's a really nice initiative, it's a nice touch. Check out the Forward Madison online store. And they're not the only USL team to be doing something like that. Two Indiana teams are playing an imaginary match. USL League 2 side South Bend Lions FC are hosting a non-match against USL Championship side Indy 11 managed by former Whitecaps head coach Martin Rennie. Tickets for what's been deemed the un game celebration cost $1, and the reason they're calling it that is this was meant to be South Bend Lions' first season. Certainly a momentous one. Your $1 will get you a ticket for this non-game, but you will be sent a commemorative e-ticket before the scheduled date of it on May 9th. You can pay by PayPal, and check out all the details on repthebend.com. All proceeds from the ticket sales will go towards COVID-19 relief support in Indiana. But that is not the only game they are selling tickets to. But that game against Indy 11 is just one of eight imaginary games that you can buy tickets for. You can also buy them for a match against English side Oxford United, English non-league team Kettering Town, Louisville Lightning, Cambodian league side Vishaka, Jersey Bulls, the Somalian Barawa FA, and for those of us in Canada, you might want to get your ticket to this one, CPL side, York 9. All the matches, the tickets cost $1. You can find the details on repthebend.com and have a little bit of fun during this time. I'm really loving these initiatives. We'll bring you any more details that we can kind of find out in the coming weeks. And if you see any, send us a a message on Twitter at AFT in Canada. I, I love these kind of things. But that is it for this part of the show. We're going to be back after the break and kicking off our new series that I kind of hinted at in last week's show. We've already had our song from the Artists of the Month. The three remaining songs that we're going to play in tonight's show is going to be part of a new game show that I'm going to introduce for the month of May called Three of a Kind. We're going to play a song at the start of parts three, four and five and the songs are going to be linked in some way. Your task is to work out what the link is and you should probably be able to do that by the, the end of the, the second song that we play and then if you can do that work out what the third song might be. Make sense? It, it will do after you've heard the first couple of songs and we'll be back with the first of those after this. Hi, I'm Lucas Carlini. you're listening to the AFD Soccer Show. Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM That was Drome by Popbull Eat Itself a greebo band from the West Midlands of England had that hit in 1992 reached number 17 in the UK charts. It's from their album The Looks or The Lifestyle and after a little bit of a hiatus the band are still going strong today That was the first of our songs tonight in our new Three of a Kind game Will you be able to work out what the link is? Well, the second of the three songs for tonight is coming up at the start of part four. So it's time now for our feature interview with this episode. We're going to be bringing you this over the next two parts. It's a chat I've wanted to do for a while. Never got round to it last year. Don't really know why, but this time has given us a chance to catch up with all these things that we've long wanted to do. And it's a sit-down, in-depth chat with Vancouver Whitecaps assistant coach, Philip DeSantis as we journey through his career, working with his brother Mark, all the intricacies that that can involve, and just just what his coaching philosophy is, what makes him tick, and what opportunity would it take to, to make him branch out on his own and, and be a head coach. These are just some of the many topics that we're going to cover over the next two parts. So sit back, grab your favourite hot beverage, a chocolate digestive, and enjoy my chat with Philip DeSantos. Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this episode. So we'll just get straight into it, really. And the first thing to, to really talk about, like everyone knows from you being the, the assistant at different places where where Mark has been, but y- your career predates that. And I mean, I was doing a little bit of research for this, and, I mean, it was quite fascinating. If we go way, way back, like... When you and your family you moved from Canada to, to Portugal, when I think you were around the, the age of ten, what what was that like for you as a kid to suddenly be uprooted and, and go to a different country?
2: It was it was something we act, I actually looked forward to it. I I, I looked back and I I loved my my time spent in Canada as a kid, uh, but I was already very very in tuned with the game and the game drove me a lot. Football drew me a lot. And I remember my, my father, he was coached. He was coaching in the Excellence League in, in Quebec at the time. Um, he would have his, his radio on, uh, listening to games all the time. My older brother played, Mark played, I played um, youth, youth football in, in Quebec at the time. So it was very exciting to Think about the idea that now I would go to a country where all these things were brought alive in such a different dimension. Uh, now go back to, to to Canada in the early nineties. Um, there was there was that one game a week maybe on TV. Uh, it was very difficult to, to 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 see the game the way we like now. It's almost global. Like we have access to so much, we feel like like a country that been emerging in the game for so many years, and it's very new still for, for Canada, so um, at the time the move was exciting. I remember flying, uh, it was me, Mark, and my older brother flying through Amsterdam. I think he was 18 or 19, I was 11, I think Mark was 12, and we just, uh, we did the flight, the, the, the three of us, uh, at the time my mom stayed back, my dad was already in Portugal. So I was excited about it. I think that as soon as we landed and got to our our place there, the first thing that I asked is, okay, how, how can I get in touch with the local club? I, I wanna I wanna experience this whole, whole new dimension. It wasn't even about school or making friends. Um, I had I think at the time I had, you know uh, my brothers were my best friends. So we mm. I was pretty happy uh, to, to make that move.
1: And I know you played a little bit semi-pro and a little bit of pro in Portugal and Mozambique as well. Yeah. What what were, what were those experiences like? And did you know from quite early in your career that coaching was more what you were going to want to do in the game as opposed to playing?
2: Yeah, I was... Uh, I was... Um, I grew up uh, being the younger brother. They would always throw me in goal. Um, <laughs> so Phil, go in goal. So... Um, I, I was a goalkeeper, and I'm like you know I'm not tall. I'm five nine, maybe five ten, and it was still okay at the time I was growing up playing because there was still a lot of of, uh, of smaller goalkeepers. You take the example of Bartez, you take the example in the in the World Cup of '94, of, of even with with uh, Campos, and you know there were goalkeepers weren't the specimens that they are today. Um, so I grew up in a club that had their senior team at the time in the Portuguese third division. And uh, I played, uh, I had an opportunity at the age of 16 uh, to sign with uh, one of the good clubs in France uh, at the time was Montpellier. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was shut down for family reasons. And then um, when I came back, or when I, I, I pursued I, I kept playing in Portugal um, I wasn't I wasn't signed as an 18 year old to the senior team so my dad had businesses in, in Portugal and in, um, Mozambique and he had arranged for me to have a trial with an affiliate of Sporting Lisbon which was uh, a club called Sporting Club of Masha Ken um, mm. and, and, and I got a two-week trial there and they decided to uh, to keep me and at the time for me it was about playing in a top league in any country, a, a league that dro- uh, dro- was driven by good fan base and spectators and you know you're 18 or 19 your head is, is you're still in, in love with the glamour that the game could bring also and uh, and I, I feel that at the time I didn't even see the monetary uh, situation. I wasn't. It was I wasn't driven by. All I needed was enough to to, to live and, and experience what it was to be a professional. Uh, and I, I ended up playing in Mozambique for four years and a half. Oh, wow.
3: um,
2: I played. Um, I remember the first game that I. I I was called to the uh, into the 18. Um, I was I was playing against the Orla, uh, the Orlando Pirates for the African Cups of Cups that still exi- existed at the time. So I remember our, our stadium was fully packed. There was it was a small stadium, but near near 20,000 people. So um, I just I just fell in love with the whole culture and the the chaos almost chaos that goes around the game in a country like Mozambique and a lot of the countries in in Africa. So I ended up staying there. And then at the age of 25, I came back to Portugal and I ended up signing uh, in the third division with the club I I grew up playing for. Um, And uh, and that was that was it. I played with them for a season and i started to question myself i was 26 i uh, was about to turn 27 and i started to think of this is it right you're, you you in a third division you're you're making a salary but it it barely you you you, you don't save anything you're you're trying to survive you're dependent on Uh, match prizes and wins, and, you know, you get a win, you pocket a bit more money at the end of the month. Uh, Then there's financial struggles, like in many countries, when you get to the lower divisions, um, especially in South of Europe, you know, okay, we're we're delayed a week here, or we can't pay you this month. So things started to be a bit difficult, and I started to really question, like, I won't be a pro at the at top of the, at the levels. I won't earn a living that will allow me to either invest or reach 35 and, you know, have enough money to um, to, to, to at least be well for a few years until I, I look for my next move. And that's when um, all the, the thought process about the, teaching the game and educating other people and other players, and I always felt... I had that in me, and it started to grow in me even more. So uh, that's when um, I came back to Montreal on a summer. So I was in. I, I still had a day of con, uh, year of contract. And Mark was already in Canada, and Mark called me one oh. time, and and he said, "Phil, look, it's your off season. Why don't you come? Um, why don't you come to to Canada? I'm uh, coaching in some camps here in uh, in uh, in Montreal." And you could help us here, and you could, you could, you could, you know, see where this takes you. And for me, it was just about going to Montreal for a month or two in the summer, and and potentially uh, coach and be around my brother and just see where it would take me at the time. And um, and I ended up staying, and I I negotiated with the club, I terminated my contract because I wasn't signing with anyone else. I decided to stay in Montreal at that time. And a few months later, I was given a full-time job in, uh, in coaching in, in one of the big regions in Quebec. I just took it from there. Then it just seemed like everything went so fast.
1: Yeah, because I was, I was going to ask you why you had kind of come back to Canada. But, I mean, you've just explained exactly why there. Because, I mean, looking back at the mid-2000s, sort of 2000s, football in Canada... It, I came here in 2007 and the game seemed so still to be developed and, I mean, the, the glory years of Canadian football, especially, like, here in BC where the, the Canadian national team was full of lots of BC players. Yeah. I mean, things, it seemed in a bit of a lull at that time. Is that kind of what appealed to you, to to kind of bring what you'd learned in Europe and try and get the Canadians playing in a kind of European mindset?
2: It it did it it but it was very organic. I think that the country embraced me more and and than I than I had even thought about it. Like for me, it was I was coming to 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 help um, a soccer organization was in need of coaches to do to do some camps, and I was just here to and see where 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 my next step would take me and and suddenly i i noticed there's this big and i arrived in 2004 there's this big boom and um you know i i was overwhelmed by it there was so so many opportunities and so many good things happening with the game and um then i started to be curious about coaching education about uh growing as a coach and 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 as i was working i was also developing and 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 um educating myself as a coach and things things came came about it very quick like very quick i said okay this is what i want to do but i want to do it at the highest level i wasn't able to play at the highest level but i want to coach at the highest level i feel that i have the leadership qualities to do it that i have the knife for the game um that i have uh, i have uh, a good understanding of, of, of how to to translate John, on the, the, from the theory to the f- football field, and, and for me, it was it, uh, right away clear that I wanted to grow in, in, in the methodology of coaching and the, 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 out how to, how to, to link leadership and, and, and management and, 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 and passing a message to players on the field. So I felt that it was a wave that was already being driven in the country, and I, I, I got in it. You know, I got in it, and it was. After that, it was, it was uh, you know, opportun- opportunities after opportunities, and, and it just felt so okay. I was meant to do this, you know?
1: Yeah, in Quebec, I know you were, like, head coach of some of the youth teams. You're a technical director out there as well for one of the regions. How did you get involved with the, the Canadian setup Because, I mean, from 2011 to 2014, you're, you were involved, with everything from under fifteen to under twenty level, as an assistant, as leading the team. When did the CSA? Well, when did you first come on the on the CSA's radar?
2: I I started to work with the Quebec Soccer Federation in two thousand and eight, maybe two thousand and seven even. Um, so, maybe a couple years after starting to coach. So I was then asked to to play a role in the National Training Center in Quebec. And I met people like um, like Sean Fleming, like Nick Dasevich, like Ray Clark and uh, Tony Fonseca at the time who were all involved with the program. And um, and they would see me work. And one day I get a phone call uh, by Sean Fleming in 2011, right prior to the World Cup. And I remember it vividly because I had, Holidays booked in Portugal, everything was booked. And, and I remember Sean asking me, um, Look, Philip, I, one of my assistants is not going to make it to this pre World Cup camp. Uh, would you be available to do it? And um, And he told me, He told me like this, I need you to come in and I need you to. You know, clip videos and tag my tra- training sessions and and assist me on the field at the same time. And I remember, I'd never clipped a video, I'd never had <laughs> training sessions, and uh, he asked me like this, "Can you can you do that?" And my answer was right away, "Yes." I said yes, and uh, and the camp was in two weeks' time, and I went to best. By, I got myself a, a, a MacBook <laughs> and I started downloading games and learning how to clip them on my own in that two week spam. So when wow. I, was, I arrived at camp, I was doing it easily already. Um, so I'm at camp, and I, for me it was clear like Sean had invited me only for those, those uh, the, 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 that's, that pre competition camp. Uh, so at that time, after the second or third day, he brings me out for a walk and then he invites me to go with the team um, as a scout for the opposition, uh, to go with the team to the uh, the 2011 World Cup in Mexico. Mm. So I canceled vacations. Um, I remember my wife being extremely upset at the time. <laughs> um, and, and, and I just went with it. I, I went to uh, to the World Cup at that time. And then when I came back to the World Cup, that's when I got a phone call from Nick Dasovich, who was preparing the under-20 pool um, for the 2013 uh, qualifier. And then um, it, it became, it, it was just, I was assistant to Nick Dasovich. Uh, then I was given the inter, inter- um, head of the interim project role.
1: I was going to ask you about that that World Cup experience. I mean, I I've only ever been to one World Cup as a as a fan. That was in 94. I, I came over when it was in the US and it's something that's always going to live with me. It was just amazing. And obviously looking forward to to 2026 as well, but to be there not just as a fan, but there as a scout actually working for a team in a World Cup. What what was that whole experience like for you? Incredible. Yeah.
2: Michael, it's incredible. Like FIFA standards, they don't lower the standards uh, for a, a U20 or a U17. The standards are set, so everything. And it was in Mexico. Mexico. If um, if if you've been there, you know that the, the 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 country itself, the injection of money that's today in the game is so high. The quality of the stadiums, the training uh, facilities. Uh, the, the passion that the, the people have for the game, like uh, that World Cup was, the final was played at, in Azteca with uh, over 100,000 people to watch a U-17 game between Uruguay and, um, and Mexico. So so it gives you an idea of how big it was at the time for the country. Yeah. And I, you know, I was I had started my coaching with, with community clubs not long ago, maybe five years ago. Uh, or six previous to that. So now finding myself in a World Cup and looking at everything that goes around, um, the organizing the event, the the the, the facilities, the, um, the the everything that goes around the game, how 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 the details are thought of, uh, of and uh, just living and experiencing all of that made me realize how how. Big the sport we we were in really is, and how um, how how important that competition is. So it was very special for me at the time. it 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 made me it made me come back and say, "This is like I want to be coaching, and I feel I have my place at the high performance level. This is where I maximize my potential, and that made made me be even more driven to want to be." Um, coaching and working and influencing
3: players
1: at the highest level uh, possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I missed the the World Cup here in 2007. I just came a couple of months, sadly, after it had been hosted in Canada. I forgot Scotland hosted the Under-17 World Cup in 89. Don't know how I can forget that, because we made the final. <laughs> so, I mean, that was another great experience. But, I mean, looking ahead to 2026... I mean, as someone that's involved in the game, as someone that's involved in bringing young players through, how excited are you for this opportunity for, for Canada to again be kinda in a World Cup?
2: Very, very excited because you look at the impact that it already has in, in the growth of uh, of the sport in the country. I think that if it wasn't for the World Cup, I, I don't know if the CPL would have come to light. Yeah. I and mean, this is just me. Uh, speculating but but I, I, I honestly believe that the World Cup had a massive role in, in, in us getting our own professional league and, and I think that there's so many opportunities that look just to, to look at it that the 94 World Cup changed completely the game uh, in the US and I think that the, the, the Canada today is is in, is in a platform I think more advanced than the US was in 94. But I just just a number of people who are not fans today, but will be fans after 2026. Um, just the investment, the, the there's just so many benefits that could come up, and then it's putting Canada in the in the map of of, of the world, and and already we're we're getting there with so many uh, so many good players coming across, and you know, So now I was reading about the interest of major clubs for Jonathan David are yeah. um, there but I think that a World Cup just brings it to another level and, and that's where the game could really reach its peak in our country
1: Well I think that's a, a good time to end this part of our chat When we return we'll have a look at the first time you worked with your brother Mark with a professional team the Ottawa Fury I'm will be back talking that and a lot more after this Hello, I'm Nick Dasvich. You're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was a song from 1987, Nosedive Karma, by Leicester band Gay Bikers on Acid, from their 1987 album, Drill Your Own Hole. I know it's a band most people here will not have heard of, but they, they had a brief success at the late 80s into the 90s. I've got a special limited edition of the Drill Your Own Hole album, it's on vinyl And you actually had to drill your own hole through the vinyl. Not literally, because that would have have damaged the vinyl. So basically, instead of the hole that you'd put on your record player, that was covered over. So when you put it on your record player, you just had to, like, push it down to drill your own hole. Another Grebo band. You can check them out on YouTube. And the second song of tonight's Three of a Kind. So we had Karma Drome by Potwold itself. Nosedive Karma by Gay Bikers on Acid. Both grebel bands. Have you worked out what the link is yet? And if you have, can you work out what the third song is going to be that's going to kick off part five? That third song will be coming up soon. But for now, let's get back to our chat with Whitecaps assistant coach, Philip DeSantos. In the, the first part before the break, we talked a lot about his early days coming through the ranks, his time spent with the Canadian national team. Now, apart from that brief time where he was working with his brother Mark and some of the, the coaching in Quebec and the camps and stuff there, Philip and Mark didn't work together in a professional capacity with a professional club until 2013, when Mark DeSantos was appointed as the head coach of Ottawa Fury and Philip DeSantos was appointed as his assistant coach, but also the technical director of the club in 2013. Now, obviously the chance to work with your brother was a, a Big thing to to jump at, but going from what you had been doing to, to not just being an assistant coach but a technical director as well, how big a, a jump was that for you? And what was the kind of learning curve like for you, especially with it being an expansion team?
2: I was I was always very I was working in youth development. I was working with uh, with the, some of the best play young players in the country by being with the national team and. Um, a lot of my my development as a coach was done in a club like FC Porto, and I saw so much of how they go about their youth development and and their their club structure and um, uh, their their training methodology and having a methodology across the line of the club and what it, uh, building an identity really means. And so I was I was passionate about that. I. I, I just said it's very hard to implement in in a community club because there's so many it's masses and um, you have to there's so many coaches to influence and to, to oversee everything. Like you could only do it to to some extent. So I always felt it was very unrealistic when you're talking about clubs of two and three and four thousand players. Um, so the the and then you're always questioning is there light at the end of the tunnel because the, a lot of the community clubs don't have that that main team which is a professional team that could drive uh, players to, to even want to excel more as they're playing at the youth level and and I always wanted to 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 put in place something similar to what I had seen in, in these pro clubs and experienced by Having my internships there, and uh, when Mark called me, I remember I had to. I knew that to go to Ottawa, I had to give up my role with the uh, the national team mm. So uh, it was it was for it wasn't a, a a straight dive in decision, but it it was one that I made fairly quick, and and I was excited about the opportunity of having one flag team that was the pro team with a coach that. Believed 100%, and the method that we wanted to apply across the board. So um, for me, that was that was uh, uh, I don't want to say a dream, but it was so appealing. It was appealing that we could now have have a, a main team and uh, uh, academy structure uh, working alongside that first team under the same umbrella uh, with the same Philosophy, the same um, te- teaching methodology, and and see how all of that would translate, bringing that identity together. Um, so it became a challenge that I feel at that time for my career I really needed.
1: I mean, I, I remember the Ottawa Times so well, getting to the the championship game and. The, the heartbreak of not getting over the line but I mean when you look at what Ottawa had achieved it was a great couple of years that yourself and, and Mark had there when you fast forward now a couple of years is it hard to believe that the club doesn't exist anymore?
2: It is, it is uh, I feel we were lucky to be in Ottawa in the best years of the Ottawa Fury yeah. I think that a lot a lot had to do with the moment of the club but I believe that a lot had to do with the leadership that were, was there at the time. I think that the dynamic between, you know, the owners and and John Pugh, who fought with his life for that club, and and then Mark, myself, uh, Martin Nash was there with yeah. us also. I think it was just such a good dynamic. Then then came came a great pro into the organization like Julian De Guzman but at that time I I just feel that the owners maybe directed their their attention into into other details it was it was it it was hard to see how slowly the club was letting go of certain pieces that at one time when we were there were so important for the club so um for sure, it was it was difficult, uh, but it was something that I wasn't surprised because I've been in in two clubs that that were in in secondary divisions, like uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, and then the San Francisco Delta, yeah. that couldn't support the one the financial burden uh, and two the dynamic of the league. Uh, and now the the leagues are set up in North America when you're in the second division, and I think that Ottawa, had, had there been allowed to be in the USL, they would still be there, um, yeah. but they suffered of the fact that you know they were caught in all this turmoil of, 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 of leagues, and, and what's next, and how, how, how is it going to look next year and the following year, and that's the reality of, of second division leagues in North America. Up until now, because I, feel, I think that the USL today has built something solid, uh, but there's still clubs that struggle, and that will struggle year to year.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, when you look at the USL, the attendances between some of the clubs is so so different. You've got like clubs like Sacramento and Indy uh, drawing five-figure crowds, and when the Whitecaps are there, Whitecaps too, and it's like sometimes they struggle to get to four figures. that's it is a strange kind of environment And I mean you've been through So much in that environment Because Mark went to Swope in 2016 You went to Fort Lauderdale Then you're reunited for that Famous and kind of infamous San Francisco Delta season I mean when you, when you look back at that And the adversity that the team faced Off the field with everything that was going on Can you can you believe that you managed to Land the championship after everything that was happening?
3: It, it,
2: like, we were looking at an article that came in one of the, the sport, sporting rep, uh, reporters and, and, and online uh, reports, and, um, and we were reading it recently and talking about it and going through some of the videos that we have. And it, when you look at it, it's, it still looks surreal. But in our every day, we, we almost forget. And it, and it's unfortunate because that's how life goes. It's in the past. So you need to to, to sometimes go back and and read about it and look at images to, to, to get a vivid memory about it. But it's so there and it's so... Look, let, let's put it like this. There's things that coaching courses will never give you. <laughs> There's things that are about life experience. It's about how you're going to manage people. It's about who you are and how you are as an individual and what type of dynamics are you able to create uh, when adversity comes. And I think that in that year, all the pieces came in place. Mark did a fantastic job in the way he led that group. I think that he had a team and a, a staff around him that were so easy to maintain a positive environment even when things were difficult so um, I think that that was a special year that was something that uh, that we'll, we'll always look back at and say wow how can we even have pulled that off and uh, and it's not an it's easy it's 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 easy to look back now and say yeah but it was a week with eight teams and yeah, but no matter how the league is, it's never easy to no. win. It's never easy to win championships. they are very, you know, there's a lot of things that need to work your way for for, for you to be able to win. And um, it was a special year for sure.
1: So, I mean, at, at the end of that that season with San Francisco, Mark obviously headed to, to LAFC. And then you went to, to India living uh, as Martin Rennie's assistant. And I mean, it wasn't a new club, but they were in a new league because they'd moved from NASL to USL. And you'd been with a new club at Ottawa. You'd been with a, a new club in in San Francisco. Is there something about that aspect of it that really appeals to you? You've kind of got a new thing, something new to mold. Not,
2: not really. I was, I was. You never go to a club to move so quick. Uh, I'm the type of person who wants to. To build something, and uh, when I was in Ottawa, I moved to the U.S. at the time, was still with a two-year contract in hand. So, uh, but Mark had moved to Slope, and uh, the club uh, hired a coach, and I, I was with the coach for about a month, and I, I just I just felt there were too many differences. And when you want you're you're gonna be an assistant coach. There's pillars that people need to see alike, like the leadership policies, the um, the um, the coaching philosophy, and, and, and then there's the methodology approach on the field. I think that in those three pillars, you need to hit at least two out of the three to be able to work with someone. And I'm not a guy that feels I need to have, you know, for me, it's about influence. If I feel I'm influencing in a in a way, I don't need. To have a status or a position, and uh, so I was there to be an assistant, and I was I was happy with my role, and but I felt very quickly that it wouldn't have been a, an easy year because of mm-hmm. the 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 philosophical differences, and even the the differences in how, how we lead, and so while that was going on, I get an offer to go to Fort Lauderdale through a an agent, um, and I, I had a, a phone call with with the head coach at the time, who's a good friend of mine today, but I didn't know at the time. And this is what was a coach that had been with the with the U17 Brazilian national team. He was a traveled coach. Had coached Al Nasser in the in the uh, in Qatar. My horizon as a coach. I didn't want to stay confined and always dealing, being with the same people. I think you need at some point to expand your your network, and I felt that um, that it was an opportunity. And I I remember we had a a little baby, one month old, and it wasn't an easy decision, but Mm. at the time it. with Mark again in my own country in a city like Vancouver it was impossible for me, it's one of those positions that you you just can't say no you just yeah. can't look back so that's how it went uh, it went. It was a little bit force of circumstances that I stayed uh, one year here, one year and a half there and, and never got, but today if people ask me one hundred percent. I want to be able to be here uh, multiple years, build something special, uh, build an identity with the people that are working with us today that are such amazing people. You look at, you know, our staff, Mark, Vanni, Youssef, Axel was added to the team and, and, and Mark and everyone else who was in the club um, and that are helping this. I think turn a corner because I feel that's what, what's happening with the club today in a positive way. Um, I, I think that this is something that I want to be a part of and I, I feel that I could contribute for. So um, It's never uh, something that is desired by a coach to just jump from one place to the other. I think that continuity is, is important, but it's not always the case in, in, in our job, in, in our line of work.
1: Yeah, mean, I was speaking to Mark a couple of weeks ago, I was asking what advice he would give a young coach, and he had said my advice would be don't get married now because the strain it puts on a relationship and wives and all this moving, people just don't understand what it does on, on a personal level. It's difficult. It's not easy. You need the
2: perfect, you need the right partner. You need the partner that is willing to Embrace your career and knows the risks that comes with it. And um, I was I've been blessed with it because um, I never had to, to separate. I think I was away from my family the the eight months I spent in San Francisco um, because it was such a short term contract mm-hmm. that we didn't move all all, uh, all the family. But uh, but apart from that, my wife is. No, it's it's at the same time it's an adventure and she wants to spend and 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 go through this adventure with me and I think that it brings me stability it brings me um, it brings me it bring it keeps me grounded uh, and 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 it, it just helps me when I come home and and I want to disconnect it it it, it helps me to to disconnect so I think it, it's important not only for for me as as a coach to uh, to have that but it's important to as a family to be able to experience every step of the journey together um, now i understand what mark says because uh, it's easier to take risks when you're you're not married yeah and this is a job of risks this is a job where um, where you need to be ready to take risks for sure
1: another thing we were talking about was basically the need to to trust your partner, both like on a personal level as in your wife, but also your partner as in your right-hand man, your assistant, and the pair of you have worked together for a number of years and does that make it easier being brothers or are there fallouts? I mean, has there ever been a time where things have got really heated between the two of you, a big disagreement?
2: Never really, never really. I think we understood our place in, in the process. Uh, uh, it's funny that you say that because I was, I was talking to, uh, to my dad today. He's in Mozambique and we were call uh, talking and, um, and, uh, in the conversation, I told them it's, it's funny that, um, since I've started working with Mark, um, I, w- I won a very good working colleague, um, and professional friend but I lost a brother and <laughs> this is a little bit of the reality like we we at the job we're not brothers and whoever's there with us on a daily basis I'm not treated differently than Fanny or Youssef or anyone else at the club the same way I don't handle myself as someone who has special privileges no I uh, for me it was always clear I want Mark to have me in his staff, not because of the relationship and the trust that that relationship brings, but because of my qualities as a professional, and 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 when you say that, you're looking at who I am as a coach, but also who I am as a person, in, independently of if I'm a brother or not. So, so the question I always ask him is, if I wasn't your brother? Would you have had me on the staff? If his answer is 100%, that's what matters for me. So, so yeah. So because of that, I say I, I have a fantastic working dynamic with Mark, and I have, I have a great professional relationship. But I lost a brother because it's very hard to to um, to be in a first world all the time together at work. Yeah. So when we have downtime we're not together, you know? And when we decide to be together very often it's because we, we have a staff dinner or so that's the reality. So so we get along and we never had to really we have our differences and I think that's normal where no, nobody's one single person. Uh, you know, you don't gra- you don't say he's the same as that one. No, we have our differences and um, and, and, and sometimes the opinions are different, but uh, we're able to injure. And sometimes I'll tell Mark, I don't agree with this. And he goes, it's OK,
3: you don't agree, but we'll still do it this way.
2: <laughs> uh, and there's times where he's going to say, uh, he's going to say, yeah, you have a point and let's move on. Or there's, there's the normal dynamic. Uh, we're all here. To help the club grow and the team win And that's that's how we want to look, look at it And that's how we, we handle ourselves in the, uh, on a daily basis
1: Yeah, I was going to ask how much time you spent together away from, from football So I mean, you've answered that What was it like growing up, the three brothers? Was there a lot of competitiveness between y'all?
2: We were always very close Very, very close uh, Me and Mark, especially because the age difference is, It's a year and a little bit um, we were always very close and spent a lot of time together but um, there was com- the, the, the competitiveness that that exists between three boys so it was competitive when we would play games it was competitive when we when we would um, Compete even in an, a, a video game—it's—it's uh, it's normal. Did we fight at times? Absolutely. In majority of the times that we fought, it's because one had won and the other one had lost <laughs> at something, you know. Um, but it was—we were very, very close, very close. Our circle of friends was was similar, the same. Um, he was always playing one category above mine. Um, but we would still, you know, at, at, at when we would get together with friends and to play any type of sports or um, or go out for a drink, it was we were very often together until the girlfriends started to show up. <laughs> then the girlfriends took a lot of space, and that might have been a problem. <laughs> I, I
1: yeah. think it. I think it was you that Mark said this about, but. Uh, he said that you like everything in its place, and they like to move things about so that you're like, where did that go? And
2: yeah, well, they they make they say that it's uh, uh, how can I say? I like I like a process, and I like things to be to be in order. Ah. You know, I'm 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 like that. So they sometimes they come in the facility and they get a mess up my desk <laughs> uh, uh, and put turn everything around and. And I'm a little bit more anal and, and how I want the things to be done and how I want the process to, and for us to stick to the process. And I'm a little bit more rigid when it comes to that. And I think that, uh, it helps in many areas of, uh, of, of my job because everything that is related to, um, that needs that type of process and, and needs that type of approach where it's, it's logged and it's detailed and, very often they're going to turn to me in the staff. So it's something that has worked for us. And uh, I think that other members of the coaching staff brings bring balance. Like Vanny brings balance. He's the artist. He's uh, You know, his head is turning all the time and he's an artist in the way he operates. And sometimes uh, if you try and get into an artist's head, he's an artist because things are all disorganized and he's able to... To, to, to make magical things happen out of that, you know? Um and, and, and I think that we have a fine balance in our stuff. But if you if you pay attention to Mark, he's always he's also very rigid and how he wants things to be properly done and not cut corners
0: and mm.
2: have a process and a method and what he does. So um, so I, I think that we're we take after our dad when it comes to that.
1: Mark has obviously Worked very closely with you for years, but when I spoke to him about a month ago, he he feels you're one of the the best coaches in Canada. I mean, you've got your UEFA A license, and you've you've had head coaching stints before. What would it take to make you go out on your own, be a head coach? I know you said you're excited about the project here. I mean, with the CPL here now, there's more coaching opportunities for young Canadian coaches. Would it just be the right opportunity that, that you're waiting for? I, I,
2: I can't be hypocrite and, and, and I have to acknowledge the fact that when you get into this business, um, you you aspire to be a head coach and, and I think that I have the qualities and the leadership qualities and management qualities to do it today. Um, I don't, I don't hide that. It's something that I, I have in my heart and I have the desire to do it, but not at all costs because I'm not driven by by the status or the position. Um, I feel that today I'm in a position where I can influence a lot and that, that drives me a lot. Every day I like to go to work and feel that I can help and influence and have a, a, a role to play in what I do. But there's, uh, there's moments opportunities that when they come, they don't come often. So, um, so of course, I, I say this, if the right opportunity comes, if the right project comes, I'll have to assess and That's the time where myself and my, my wife will, will sit down and say, is this the right thing for us? Is this something that could could shift my career to, towards an head coach opportunity? So that's all things that at the time i'll evaluate but it's not something that i go to bed anxious about i feel that i'm in a a good place a good position i like the place the, the 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 role that i have today in the organization and you know i just look back and and say there's yes there's an element of competence that plays plays a role but it's also you need to, you need to land the opportunities and how many young Canadian coaches would, would really aspire and, and and desire to be in a position that I have today. So I'm grateful for it, for it. And I don't want to be doing that job thinking about another job, um, because I think it's going to deviate my attention to, to what I need to be doing today and to the process that I need to bring every day into work. So, um, yes it's there yes the desire is there uh but i'll evaluate it when when it comes when when the opportunity hits and um obviously you you in the off season there's always uh, connections always calls always uh, mumbling of, of look would you be interested in this or would you be interested in that um, and, and that those are things that we assess every time that they knock at our door. so um, if I'm not there yet, it's because the right opportunity uh, or, or the, 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 the 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 one that would make me move from where I am today as has as come yet.
1: I, I think that's a fantastic way to, to end this, Philip. Uh, thank you so much for your time Perfect. today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you.
2: Perfect, Michael. Same here, right?
1: And hopefully we'll see you on the pitch at some point soon. Uh-
2: I hope so too. I hope so too. Now I'm, uh, look, I'm just enjoying the time that I have at home. My pitch is a 15 by 15 or 10 by 10 in my backyard with my with my <laughs> five-year-old. So I try to make the most out of it.
1: Thanks so much to, to Philip DeSantos for his time there. Hope you enjoyed listening to that chat as much as I did having it with him. A lot of interesting stuff in there just about his life and his career and his journey to Vancouver, what what the future might hold in store. And getting an insight as to what it's like as well within the kind of DeSantis dynamic. And it was very interesting to hear him say that he's got a great working partner and a great friend, but he feels that he's lost his brother with having that relationship because they don't really see each other outside of playing football and all the things to to do with that so I mean that's very interesting an aspect I don't think a lot of people would maybe have thought of but there's certainly no doubting that the, the two of them together they work really well together they've got a great chemistry together they've got the same kind of philosophy together and when you think of like coaching partnerships throughout the years it's like a lot of them you, you think of kind of tandems. I mean, Brian Clough and Peter Taylor is probably the most famous one that springs to my mind whenever I think of like coaching tandems. They weren't brothers, of course, but they kind of had a kind of brother's bond, had a falling out, made up again, and a very interesting dynamic when you are working that closely with somebody for so long at a different number of clubs and a different number of environments. And I really would not be surprised if at some point down the road, we're talking about the DeSantis brothers being in charge of the Canadian national team. To me, they seem the perfect fit. And you've got to think that that's going to be something that lies in their futures. But thanks so much to Philip for that chat. That's it for this part. And we'll be back with the final part of tonight's show after this. Hi, I'm Carl Valentine. You're listening to the
2: AFTN podcast.
1: Welcome back to the final part of this episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. That was the wonderful Karma Police by Radiohead from their 1997 album OK Computer. Their third album, and arguably their best one as well. I mean, Radiohead's first three albums, Pablo Honey, The Bends, and OK Computer, all absolute classics, and for me they kind of lost direction a little bit after that. I, I more preferred the early guitar sound and... I mean, Karma Police, an absolutely haunting ending that that you have of the song there. And I was thinking recently, everyone's doing their lists of their, their favourite books and songs and bands and, and stuff like that just now. So I was trying to think of some of my all-time favourite gigs that I've been to. And one of the ones that's right up there is Radiohead in Glasgow. Can't really remember the year. It was on Glasgow Green. And they played in a giant circus tent. And it was round about the OK computer time. So we're probably thinking 97, 98. And it was just an absolutely fantastic gig that they put on. That's definitely up there as one of my all-time faves. But that song Karma Please was our third song from tonight's Three of a Kind section. Did you work out what the link was? We had Karma Drome by Potboat Eat Itself. Nosedive Karma by Gay Bikers on Acid. And finally... Karma Place by Radiohead. So yes, the link to all those songs was karma. Hopefully you got some good karma by guessing that. A nice easy one to start off this month's three of a kind game. And we'll be back next week with another selection. See if you can work it out then. But let's keep the musical theme going. It's time now for this week's wavelength. And we're actually only going back to 2019 this week. A song from English band Booze and Glory. A punk and oi band hailing out of London? Big West Ham supporters. And this song has a West Ham theme. Kicking off a month of wavelength songs all about specific football teams. Maybe I'll just make them all about West Ham. I do have a lot of them. That's what comes from so many of the, the punk bands supporting the Hammers. And this is a song from Booz and Glory's 2019 album Hurricane. And this is something which West Ham haven't had a lot of this year. I'm probably not gonna get many off in the coming months either. This is Booze and Glory and three points. Booze and glory there with three points, a song taken from their 2019 album, Hurricane. So moving on, we're going to finish this final part of this week's episode by talking Whitecaps. It's been a very successful week for the Whitecaps off the pitch as their community efforts are really going from strength to strength. And it's been a very impressive couple of weeks in the money that the Whitecaps have raised for some local initiatives and just the work that they've done in the local community. We covered the release of the Vancouver Aquarium face masks on last week's show. At the time of recording this on Sunday night, May 3rd, the Whitecaps had sold over 100,000 of the masks, raising over $2 million for Vancouver Aquarium. And as Lars Gustafsson said on last week's show, the aquarium is basically needing a $1 million a month to survive right now. So those mask sales alone adds a couple of months security to the aquarium, which is fantastic. It's certainly going to be a lot of masks for the the company that's producing them to produce. But the Whitecaps are hopeful that the masks will start to go out quite soon. And it's been an overwhelming response. I mean, I think speaking to to some people within the Whitecaps organisation, they were maybe hoping for for at least 10,000 sales of the the masks. That was kind of a realistic figure. They were privately hoping for a lot more. But to go over 100,000 in just over a week has kind of just blown everyone away. And that initiative was followed up this week with the, the latest community outreach, with Whitecaps raising money for Vancouver food banks, partnering with local artist Carson Ting to produce two art prints, commemorating the Frontline Heroes in the 7 o'clock clap. You can get a colour version, or a blue and white version, for $30 plus taxes and shipping. And again, at the time of this recording, there's been over $100,000 raised from sales of those prints so far. A chunk of that, 10,000, was donated right away by Neutral Vodka. And the print seem to have gone down really well with everyone. It's got some good publicity for the Whitecaps, some much-needed good publicity for the Whitecaps, you may even want to say, after a very tumultuous 2019. But the club have certainly moved on from those times under the leadership of Mark Panis, And it's fantastic to see. I mean, I'm delighted and proud to, to see what the Whitecaps are doing. I'm, I'm proud that the Whitecaps are my local team. And the Caps held a conference call on Friday morning with artist Carson Ting, Whitecaps players Tosan Ricketts and Russell Tybert, and Whitecaps front office staff member John Rees. So just going to bring you a little bit of that just now, just talking about the initiative, what was behind it, and why working so closely with the community, especially at this time, is really important not just to the club, but to players like Russell Tiber and Tosan Ricketts. Let's hear what they all had to say.
0: It was really eye-opening just going to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank and, and seeing what they do and how they have a, such a, a great impact on the community. Something that we kind of take for granted is, is being able to have food on the table. And the impact that they have from, from an organization that has no government funding is just with foundations and, and people in the community really helping distribute and get food to people in need uh it was truly special and it just goes to show you in a troubling time how the community comes together and and functions as one and are and are willing to help each other out. So I was I was again like just to further what Toss said, I was I was really honored to to deliver that that piece of artwork that was signed by Carson and and just be a part of this campaign because it's it's truly remarkable what we're able to do when we all work as one.
1: Now you've obviously been involved with the, the White Cats for so many years. And I think it's fair to say that although the club has been involved in the community in the past, we've kind of seen it really step up a level just now during this outbreak. What have you noticed is so different with the club just now? And what does it mean to you to be part of a club that is wanting to be involved in the community so much just now?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I remember having a conversation with Mark and, and saying this is the most support that I've felt. Um, in the past 10 years but I also think to echo what you said this is the the most support that we have given to our community and and we've already held ourselves to a really high standard in trying to be a part of the community to support the community but this is a really troubling time and we understand that the people of of Vancouver and the people in our community are, are in need and the club has done everything in every aspect to step up to the plate and really deliver and not just be the people that say that they're going to help, they are on the ground, they are doing we are doing the work that is necessary and needed by our community right now when when they're truly in need.
3: I mean Michael asked russell Russell has been here as one of the longest tenured players, but uh your time with Vancouver Whitecaps is very short, but it seems like you're really, really motivated to get out in the community and help with just a massive amount of things.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I've always had a a desire to give back and help the community, help, help, uh, I don't know, grassroots, help the kids, help, help anyone in uh, any way. And you know, what better opportunity than now and uh, with a club and an organization that is, is so prepared and so ready to get out there and do what they can to, to give back and help those in need and, and just do their part. And it's, um, it's, it's nice to be involved and it, it's nice to, to be a part of it. And, you know, uh, I take great, great pride in it. And, you know, it's uh, Vancouver Whitecaps as an organization, it's, 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 I'm just happy to be here and see what they do and be a part of it. It's, it's great and the community needs it.
1: I've just got a question for John. Now, obviously the success last week of the face masks with the aquarium I think it was beyond what anyone was really expecting or planning for at the club. Have you seen a target for how many prints you're looking to sell or how much money you're looking to raise from this?
4: You know, we can't um, say enough about the outpouring of support for the Vancouver Aquarium Initiative and the face masks. And, you know, I believe we're close to topping over 90,000 um, as, of, as of right now. So an amazing support from the community on that initiative. And, and we just really wanted to keep the ball rolling Um, and and really use our platform to, you know, help out as much as we can and and speaking to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank um, understood their need uh, of support. So, you know, the collaboration was across the board with uh, companies and organizations and the art community putting in a ton of time. And at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at well over $100,000 spent in resources and equipment and time on this initiative. So, you no, know, we we would love to see this um, just take off as much as possible. And um, so far, the outpouring of support has been, been phenomenal. So we'd love to see this, um, to, to, to have some legwork and do some great support for the food bank.
3: Obviously, you know, the Whitecaps came to you with this idea, but I was just wondering where you drew your inspiration because, I mean, it's such a detailed and gorgeous artwork. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your inspiration for it. Uh, it was a very collaborative effort, and uh, I wouldn't have done it without, uh, you know, everyone on the team. And it, it really, truly is, uh, uh, you know, it t- takes a village for, for for something like this to happen. Initially, my concept was to do a uh, Vancouver map, uh, you know, with all the different neighborhoods, uh, you know, including Carisdale and East Van. Um, the reason why I wanted to do a map was because uh, most of the illustrations I do as murals, maps are such a big hit, and I thought, this would be a surefire way. But when I presented to John, John made a really good uh, uh, observation was that because it's a map, inherently everyone in the illustration will be very small, almost, you know, like basically a speck. And uh, he, he, he suggested that we shoot this or illustrate this from a street, street eye view, a, pers- a first person's view, which gives it a much more intimate and first per- uh, intimate um, uh, experience to, to the piece. And so... Through several pivots, um, you know, talking to John and Perry, uh they, they were able to give me really good feedback. And uh, I, I started to illustrate this piece uh, from a first-person view on the street level, really kind of like taking in the, the 7 p.m. cheer and, and how it actually happens when you're out, on, out and about when it all happens. Um, so that's where the inspiration came from.
1: So Russell Tibert to St Ricketts, Whitecaps front offices, John Rees, and local artist Carson Ting, talking about the art print initiative. But that is it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm Michael McCall. You can follow me on Twitter at AFT in Canada, follow us on Instagram at AFT in Soccer, and follow us on YouTube at AFT in Canada. Like, subscribe, comment, and share. Don't forget you can also subscribe to the AFTN Extra podcast. $30 a year, $3 a month. That'll get you at least one extra podcast a month. Thank you as always to all our existing subscribers. We just had our most recent episode out a couple of days ago. If you're not a subscriber yet, you can find out how you can by visiting aftn.ca. But until next time, thanks for listening. Take care, stay home, stay safe, stay healthy,